All right, so we're going to pick back up in 63 A.D. So understand, there's a lot going on here in this time frame and around this area of what we now call the Middle East. By the way, did we talk about this, why it's called the Middle East? Did we talk about that? Does anyone know why the Middle East is called the Middle East? Huh? We did talk about it, didn't we? Y'all don't don't remember when we talked about Greenwich time? (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. Greenwich, yeah. So it's the Middle East because it's midway from England to the Far East. The Far East would be China. The Middle East is what we know as the Middle East, the Arab nations, Israel. Um, And then the Near East is even nearer to England than that. So um, we call it the Middle East. Um, So there was a lot happening at this time under Rome's rule and various things. But in 63 AD, Jerusalem enjoyed um, relative peace and prosperity. Uh, at this time, there there were things in the greater region. Remember, we talked about all the thieves and, and there had been pirates in the Mediterranean and the Romans kind of got rid of the pirates. And um, I watched a really interesting who watched that with me about the guy from um, an archaeologist historian. He teaches at a seminary and every year he goes to Turkey and he um he just walks all over Turkey. I mean, he just walks anywhere, like up to people's homes, because Turkey has so many historical sites that they're not even logged. They're not even cataloged. They just exist everywhere. And so, for instance, this guy found the oldest known synagogue um, to date on earth the oldest synagogue, and it was there in Turkey. And, um, and so I say that because uh, there's lots going on. And so in this, it was interesting in this little documentary about Turkey and about historical and biblical sites and, and, uh, and stuff, they talked about the pirates of Cilicia. Uh, and, and remember, we talked about those, how um, they were basically destroyed. Pompey destroyed them. Well, they were driven from the sea, but they lived in this, um, you know, if you can visualize in your mind a map of the world and, you know, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and then it curves on around and then you've got Turkey. Well, in that in that curve there, that's Cilicia and that's where the pirates all kind of where their base was. Well, when the Romans drove them out of the sea, they went to land and they just terrorized people. And so this synagogue was way up in the hills, very rugged terrain. Well, they lived up there. The people would move up there and because the pirates ruled the coastline and they would just rob and thieve and terrorize people. Well, this was happening um, in various places. And remember, we talked about this happening in, in Israel. But Jerusalem proper, the city, at this time, uh, 
enjoyed relative peace and prosperity. Well, in 63 AD, there was a, um, a man by the name of Jesus, the son of Ananias. He was just a common guy. So what you're gonna, we're going to actually, I'm going to reference three people named Jesus in our lesson tonight. None of them are Jesus the Christ. Jesus was a very common name uh, among the Jews. Ananias, the, Jesus the son of Ananias. Not Ananias the high priest, but just some regular guy named Ananias. It'd be like someone named John or Jeff or Jesse, you know, Joe Biden, the president. You know, not everyone named Joe is the president, right? Well, not everyone named Jesus was the Messiah. They, not everyone named Ananias was the high priest. So this was just a common guy, who, a Jew, who came to Jerusalem because it was the Feast of Tabernacles. And why did he come? Because the Feast of Tabernacles was a pilgrim feast and every male was commanded by God in the law to appear before him in the place in which he chose his name to dwell forever. We find this back in Leviticus. You find this back in Exodus where before there was a Jerusalem and God said when he gave the law to Moses... In that day, here are these seven feasts. These three feasts, you are commanded to appear before me in the place that I've chosen for my name to dwell forever. Well, where is that place? Ultimately, in 63 AD, that place was the city of Jerusalem, where the temple was. Where is that place now? Same place. City of Jerusalem, where the temple is. Who is that? That's us. We are the new Jerusalem. We're the holy Jerusalem. We're the heavenly Jerusalem waiting to come down from heaven. When will that happen? When the consummation of all things takes place. And so at the Feast of Tabernacles in 63 AD, a man by the name of Jesus, the son of Ananias, a countryman, a Jew, a And a common, a man of the common people arrived at the Feast of Tabernacles and suddenly began to cry out. Well, what this means is he didn't come here planning to do this. He came here and God moved on him. I say God moved on him. I believe God moved on him. And he began to cry out. And here's what he said. A voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds. A voice against the bridegroom and the bride. A voice against all this people. And it says that he cried like this day and night. And he went through all the streets of the city. And the nobility ignored him. As a sign of impending doom or trouble. And they took him and they scourged him with many stripes trying to get him to stop. However, I don't know what I have written there. Uh, He spoke nothing. However, he, I was typing and not looking. I noticed there, I didn't go back and look at my little underette and my, you know. However, he spoke nothing privately to himself. In other words, he didn't say anything to himself. He remained silent. He didn't speak to the people beating him. He continued on with the same cry. The magistrates, I'm so sorry, thought he had a message from God and brought him to the Roman governor. The Roman governor beat him and the record shows that 
The governor beat him to the point that his bones showed through. Yet he never made an entreaty nor shed a tear, but at every stroke replied, Woe, woe to Jerusalem. The Roman governor at that time, by the name of Albanus, questioned Jesus, but got no reply. Determining that he was insane, he released him, and this Jesus persisted in this manner. He continued doing this, going throughout Jerusalem, all during the days of the feast, but he didn't stop at the end of the feast. He remained there through the wars, even into the siege of Jerusalem, and ultimately he was killed by a a stone that was catapulted by one of the siege engines of the Romans. Interestingly, he was, he was killed just before. It would have been months before Jerusalem was actually taken. And so uh, what he proclaimed for those years constantly came true. It was said that he cried out night and day, that his voice never grew hoarse at all. And he remained strong in that cry until he was suddenly killed by that catapult stone. And that was probably, this is just my opinion, that was probably the mercy of the Lord. Because when that stone hit him, he didn't know anything until he was probably in glory. A.D. 64, that year a controversy over the high priesthood was played out with, here's another, Jesus, the son of Damnius, being replaced by Jesus, the son of Gamaliel. Now, I think it's kind of interesting that we got a bunch of Jesuses here uh, who are instrumental or they're, what's happening with them is, is kind of leading us to what Jesus proclaimed when he proclaimed judgment upon Jerusalem. Well, when these two Jesus, these two men named Jesus had this controversy over the high priesthood, there was a dispute. They each had followers and each of their followers were violent men. And so in 64 AD, the tension in Jerusalem or the tension in Israel was ratcheting up because of Roman oppression. Uh, They wanted the Romans to be overthrown. And so this sedition and rebellion was just like boiling under the surface. And so what you when you read the details of history, you'll see that, you know, there were rich people, rich, powerful Jews who were paying off the Roman governor to basically look the other way during all of these seditious and rebellious acts. And while they were paying the Roman governor to look the other way, you had these, these, um, these different Jewish factions who were jockeying for power because it was understood that the Jews were going to go to war against the Romans. And what was happening is the Jews were quietly preparing for war while they were paying off the Roman, the corrupt Roman officials, making the Roman officials think 
that these Jews in power, these, the nobility of the Jews, were really for the Romans. Uh, and they were just really trying to keep things under control and help their Roman friends. But in reality, they were planning a war to overthrow Rome. And, and so within those different Jewish factions, everybody's jockeying for position. So it's kind of like their belief was the Messiah is coming. Why did they believe the Messiah was coming? Why were they so certain the Messiah was coming at this time? Because Daniel gave them the timeline. And so they knew based on Daniel's prophecy that it was time. They understood what those four empires seen in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, seen in Daniel's dreams. Remember, I think we talked about this. The legend uh, that is written as history. Uh, we don't know. It's not in our Bible. But in the, remember, in the 400 years of silence, as Alexander the Great is approaching Jerusalem, um, the history of the Jews tells us that the high priest went out with the priesthood, all dressed in white. And they carried the scroll of Daniel to Alexander the Great, and they showed Alexander the Great where he was prophesied in history. And that it was prophesied that he would overthrow the Persians and that he would rule the world. And Alexander was so impressed with the prophecy about himself that he spared Jerusalem. And he was uh, very friendly to the Jews while he was alive. And so uh, the Jews had Daniel's prophecy. They knew the timeline. And so they believed that their Messiah was going to come anytime. And they knew based on Daniel's prophecy that Rome would be overthrown. They understood what the rock crushing the feet of that image meant. They, they understood what it meant to a certain degree. They understood that that kingdom would be overthrown. They just didn't understand how it would be overthrown and actually who would overthrow it. They thought they would overthrow it. So you have these powerful Jews, these wealthy Jews and powerful, influential Jews that are trying to put themselves in a position so that when the Messiah comes and they overthrow the Romans, they wanted to have the preferred position in the reign of the Messiah. So you see how carnal their thinking was. They, this is why they murdered Jesus. They totally missed who he was because they could not see what God was actually revealing to them in his word. And so these two guys fought over the priesthood and Jesus, the son of Gamaliel, is appointed by King Agrippa. And then their followers were fighting. And so this was kind of one of those other steps that brought greater degradation of peace and security uh, within the Jews themselves. So through these Jewish leaders, these Jewish leaders, through the violence and cruelty that, that would be committed by, they laid the seeds of the coming destruction of Jew-on-Jew Jew violence that we see during the siege of Jerusalem that still 
seven years away from this point, or actually four years away from this point. So all of this contributed to an environment of revolution that consumed Jerusalem at this time. The Jews bribed the Roman governor to overlook their seditious acts and caused them to increase even more. So, you know, when law and order is not observed, more unlawfulness and more disorder rules. We're seeing this in our own country today. Um, we just won't charge criminals with crimes. We'll just let them go. And then crime will decrease. It doesn't even make sense. Uh, and so just as, and this is why I think we can look at history here. This is all part of God's judgment. You can see how God is preparing Jerusalem for the coming judgment that Jesus proclaimed. And all of these little, seemingly little things that happened in history that no one at that point connected all the dots together. But now we can look at it. We can look at the whole picture and we can see how all these dots connect and how all of these different things that contributed to the environment in Jerusalem ultimately contributed to it's, it's ultimate destruction and the judgment that God proclaimed upon it because of their unrepentant sin. So the first persecution of the Christians under Rome, under Emperor Nero, began in this year, in AD 64. The great fire of Rome broke out on July 18th, 64 AD. And Nero blamed the Christians... Uh, it, it's pretty well believed and accepted um, that the Christians became his scapegoat. Uh, most people did not really believe that Christians set the fire. Um, they believed that the Christians were accused because they were convenient scapegoats to take the attention off of Nero. It didn't work. It worked for a while, but it didn't really work because uh, Rome was growing tired. The people in power in Rome were growing tired of Nero. So this persecution began in 64 AD. It was the first of, of, of about 10 waves of persecution that the church would endure under Rome from 64 AD to, to, to the time Constantine through the Edict of Milan in, uh, I think, 315 A.D., ended persecution and made Christianity the state religion and made it illegal to actually persecute Christians. So Nero blamed Christians, but um, it didn't really um, go over well. He began to murder Christians. They were brutally murdered. Uh, so Circus Maximus was his uh, circus. That's actually where the fire began, over there where that was. But he had other venues um, that were used, and they would um, send Christians to the wild beast as sport. They would put animal skins on them, wrap them in animal skins, and then put them out there for wild dogs to devour. He would use them as garden torches. Um, I know this is kind of gross, but I think it's important for us to understand the wickedness of man. 
And, and if we think, because we live in an age where, uh, you know, I can talk to my phone and it'll do all kind of magical things, that we won't do things like that again, you're wrong. They're happening even now. Well, I think it's also important to realize, too, like Rome was the civilized world. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that, that is exactly right. They were the center of all technology and law and peace and, uh, you know, uh, the things we want to um, learn from today. And we, we do. They did contribute many good things, but there were many horrible things as well. Um, this is when Christians begin to hide in the catacombs. So the catacombs were actually underground burial chambers. Uh, literally, they were, they were these um, underground caverns or chambers under the streets of Rome. And they were used as um, burial places. They were burial grounds beneath the streets of Rome. It is estimated that in the, in the years of persecution in the first century, between 2 and 7 million Christians were buried in the catacombs. Um, They went to their their death. Uh, So lots of Christians were killed under Roman persecution. 64 to 65 AD, this is when Paul likely wrote his letters to the Philippians, to Philemon, to the Colossians, to the Ephesians. And if you believe Paul wrote the Hebrews, a letter to the Hebrews, and many people do, uh, it would have been more than likely around this time. It is also believed that at this time in 65 AD, Paul was released from prison, that he uh, basically won his appeal and was released. Um, in 65 AD, the building of the temple was completed that year. So... Remember, Herod began an expansion of the temple, Herod the Great. And this expansion and construction continued. And so construction on the temple proper and the temple mount, and or not the temple mount, I don't believe the temple was on the temple mount, but the, the temple compound, the temple complex um, was completed in 65 A.D., Um, historians tell us there were about 18,000 workers working on the temple. And when the work of the temple was completed, you had 18,000 Jews who didn't have any work. And you had a beautiful temple. We're going to see this uh, when the temple is destroyed. It is said that um, Titus... Grieved because of the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of the temple. And he watched as it just went up in flames. And was destroyed by its own people in a sense. We'll get to that. Um, And so, remember, temples weren't just places of worship. But temples were also... um, Places where people would deposit their wealth. So there was a 
royal treasury there of the Jews. But temples were also places where money was kept. And this was one of the things that uh, Jesus, when he overturned the tables in the temple during, uh, at his triumphal entry... And we see two of these episodes at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry before his crucifixion. And that act by Jesus was sending a message to those Jewish elders of the Sanhedrin who controlled all of this money and all of this wealth. Remember, the high priest was the guy who ruled Israel. Israel didn't have a king. They had a high priest. You had a high priest who was one of the 70 of the Sanhedrin, the Council of Elders. These were the guys that ruled everything. And so, you know, if you get into the minutia of this and you start reading all of this history, you see that it was a very incestuous uh, affair. So you had wealthy and powerful families who made sure that their people were on the Sanhedrin and they were the ones that were were there and were in control and making decisions. They were the people who were um, negotiating with the Romans because they couldn't do anything with the Romans except learn how to live with them until they could overthrow them. And so we're at a point now in 65 AD that the Jews are believing that it is time to overthrow their oppressors. And so the building of the temple's complete. You got all these unemployed workers, uh, and with all this extra money, the fear was that Rome is going to come in here, and they're going to try to take our money. Maybe they would. So they devised ways to basically they they go to the they go to Agrippa and they say, "Look, we need another building project. We need uh, to do this so that we can keep our guys busy and we can pay them to keep the Romans off our backs." Basically, uh, he didn't go for it, and so you have all of this going on in the same year in 65 A.D. Remember Jesus, the countryman, the son of a commoner, the son of of. Uh, Ananias comes to the Feast of Tabernacles and he's crying out. Well, in 65 AD, other things begin to happen. Now, this is all recorded in the history uh, that Josephus records for us. So if you can imagine in 65 AD, Jesus, the son of Ananias, is still walking around Jerusalem, crying out, woe, woe to Jerusalem. And people think he's crazy. So they're not even paying attention to him anymore. You know, it's like he's been here for so long. We're so used to seeing and hearing him. We just write him off. He's like the crazy homeless guy on the side of the street you pass every day. And you just don't even pay attention to him anymore because you just see him. He's there every day. And he just becomes a fixture. But... In the midst of this fixture walking around Jerusalem proclaiming its doom, other things begin to happen. And Josephus records some of these. So many of these things happen at feast times. So, for instance, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread or at Passover um, in 65 AD, 
At the ninth hour of the night, that's 3 a.m., a light shone between the altar and the temple that was so bright it was like noontime. It's kind of interesting to me because it makes me think about Jesus being crucified at the ninth hour of the day, 3 p.m. And at his death, it becomes so dark at noontime, it was like 3 a.m. in the morning. On the same feast day, a cow being led to sacrifice brought forth a lamb in the middle of the temple. Now, that's, that's in the history of, that Josephus writes. That's in the, the history records. And you say, it's impossible. It couldn't have happened. It didn't really happen. Biologically, scientifically, it couldn't happen. And it didn't happen. But could it have happened miraculously as a sign? And why, when bringing a cow to sacrifice... At Passover, or to the altar for a sacrifice, why would a lamb be birthed? Maybe God was telling them, you shouldn't be bringing cows or lambs or goats or turtle doves to be sacrificed here anymore because I've already given the only sacrifice, the perfect lamb, my son, the only sacrifice that can take away your sins. Also, at that time, the east gate of the temple, which was made of brass and extremely heavy, each morning it took 20 men to open it, and each evening it took 20 men to close it. And it was locked with bars and bolts of iron. And those bolts went down into a threshold, a single stone, made up that threshold, and at the sixth hour at midnight, the gate opened on its own accord. And when the watchmen found the gate, they couldn't explain how it was open, and they had to get a group of men to close the gate again and close it. There was another event that happened, not just in Jerusalem and not just in the temple, And Josephus says that he would have deemed this a fable except that he interviewed so many eyewitnesses who were credible that he was left with no choice but to believe that it was something that actually happened. In the summer of that year, before sunset, all over the country, so all over Judea, Samaria, all over the country, there were reports at sunset of iron chariots seen in the air and armies in battle array passing along in the clouds and surrounding all the cities. And Josephus said, I talked to so many people across the country that I have no choice but to report it as something that happened. Now this is 65 AD. This is The year prior to the start of hostilities, so the war with Rome, the the war between the Jews, the Jewish war with Rome, started in 66 AD. So we're in the year 
the months preceding the, the beginning of hostilities. And this was a sign that happened. That same year, 65 AD, at the Feast of Pentecost, which would be 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, specifically after the Feast of First Fruits, the priests went into the temple by night to perform the divine service. And as they went in, they found the place seemed to be moving and making noise. And then they heard a sudden voice say, let us depart from here. And it is believed that this was God giving signs to his people. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this when we actually get to the, to the war and leading up to the siege of Jerusalem. If Josephus was able to record all of these things, and he did, he records them, whether we want to believe they were real or not, all of these things are consistent with what Jesus prophesied to his disciples, which would have been 32 years prior to this. In 33 AD. If Jesus is crucified in 33 AD, it would have been in 33 AD that Jesus would have uttered the prophecies recorded for us in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, uh, and and also um, John 12. Which means... Since we know we have a biblical record of those prophecies in the Gospels, we know that the disciples of Jesus were paying attention to what he said. They wrote those prophecies down. And if Josephus was able to write this history, he's able to write it because there were many people who saw and experienced these things. And if there were that many people who saw and experienced these things... How many of those people saw and experienced these things, heard Jesus, the son of Ananias, for almost seven years, heard of the priest hearing the voices, let us depart from here, heard of the Nicanor gate swinging open by itself, heard of iron chariots and soldiers in battle arrays surrounding all the cities of Judea, Christians would have heard about these things. And what would Christians have thought about these things? Well, I think they would have thought these are the signs that Jesus told us about. It is time. The time is near. No man knows the day or the hour, but the time is near. When these things are going to come upon us. And we know this, that when the Romans besieged Jerusalem, there were no Christians in the city. Why were there no Christians in the city? There were no Christians in the city because they took the words of Jesus literally and they left. And this is one reason that Christians, the the Jewish Christians were despised 
by the Jews of the first century because they abandoned their city and they abandoned their people is what the Jews said. You guys took off and left and didn't stay and defend Jerusalem. What, we didn't stay and die? No, that's right. We didn't because our Messiah, the true Messiah, told us exactly what we needed to do when we saw these signs. You know how to discern the fig tree when you see it. So understand how to discern the signs of these times and get the heck out of Dodge. Well, not Dodge, but Jerusalem, right? And that's what the Christians did. So 65 A.D., Paul preaches the gospel on the Isle of Crete. He leaves Titus there to set the church in order. Also in 65 A.D., another change in the priesthood happens. King Agrippa takes the high priest from Jesus, the son of Gamaliel. Remember, he gave it to him. Now he's taking it away from him. Here's more payoffs, bribes. Here's more jockeying for position. He obviously needed favor from the family of Matthias, the son of Theophilus, because that's who he gave the high priesthood to. And it was during the reign of Matthias that the Jewish wars would begin. So Jesus being removed and Matthias being set in place again, was laying the ground for the coming war, the war that would erupt here in just a very short period of time. Josephus, seeing all of this taking place, is doing his best to try to convince the Jews to not rebel against Rome. Now, we'll uh, talk a little bit more about Josephus. By the way, Josephus was born the same year Nero was born. So Josephus and Nero are the same age. They obviously took very different paths. Um, But at this time, Josephus is still a relatively young man. um, And he is trying to talk his people into not rebelling against Rome because he he can see what's going to happen. He knows. He does not believe that they will be successful. Now, he doesn't believe that because he believes Jesus is the Messiah. He's just a rational person. He's a very educated man, extremely educated, extremely smart, extremely intelligent, uh, though he, I don't know if he ever stopped being a fool or not and embraced Jesus as his Messiah. There's no historical record that says that he did, but he was a devout Jew and he loved his nation and he loved his people and he did not want to see them destroyed by the Romans. And so he's trying to talk them out of war against Rome. We'll see later on when the war breaks out, Josephus actually joins his people and fights against Rome because he loves his people that much. Uh, 66 AD, Paul travels to Ephesus and rejoins Timothy. Nero that year, we have this in the record of Josephus, and I included this because I think it's kind of fascinating. Nero commissions a report on the strength and the state of Jerusalem. And so his governor's name is Cestius Gallus. Uh, But Cestius Gallus hated the Jews and the Jews hated him. 
And he didn't want to leave Antioch and go to Jerusalem and count Jews. So he asked the high priest to perform the census. And so they did it at the um, Feast of Passover. So they, just, they counted literally the number of lambs that were sacrificed that year. And that's how they got an estimate of the number of Jews to give to Nero. They didn't count people. They counted lambs. And that year, in 66 AD, there were 255,600 uh, lambs sacrificed on the day of Passover. Now, let's stop for a moment and let's think about that. I don't know how many of you here have sacrificed. I don't know how many of you here, I've never sacrificed an animal either. But I have actually gutted and dressed out quite a few of them in my lifetime. I used to be a, a hunter and we processed all of our own deer. And so I became pretty proficient at field dressing and processing a deer in my kitchen. Uh, I haven't done it much since I lived here um, because I don't have a place to hunt. Um, And so even becoming pretty proficient at it, the thought of having in one day 255,600 lambs sacrificed is amazing. That is a lot of blood. That's a lot of blood. I don't think we realize how bloody a place the temple was and the tabernacle was. It's why they would have built that temple someplace where they had virtually an endless supply of water because it would require... How much water do you need for 255,600 lambs? And we don't have a faucet to turn on. We don't have a water hose to take. I mean, you better have a ready water supply somewhere close, and there better be a lot of it, a.k.a. the spring of Gihon. That's a different subject. But so from that number of lambs and the priests knew exactly how many lambs they sacrificed, they kept account. And so the estimate was each lamb would feed 10 to 20 people. So when you sacrifice the lamb, you planned on having a household that was going to feed 10 to 20 people. Now, that doesn't mean that every household, every family had 10 to 20 people. It could have. Maybe people join, you know, but, but the Jews had it down. They've been doing this for, for how long at this time? They've been doing it for 1,500 years. So they, they have a pretty good uh, system down, and they estimate 10 to 20 people per lamb. So they sent Nero an estimate and said, in Jerusalem you have about 2,000, 2,700,000 people. Um, When it is said the same year when Cestius Gallus came to visit Jerusalem, there were three million people that came to complain to him because of the calamities that were happening in their country. Now, these weren't all necessary 
necessarily citizens of Jerusalem, but they were people who lived in Judea and the surrounding areas. And remember, by this time, we're at the very cusp of the war, and there is a lot of really bad things happening, and the Jewish people are suffering. They're suffering from their own people, and they're suffering from the Romans. It's just a horrible situation. King Agrippa knows that the Jews are planning war. Everybody knew it except the Romans. They kept it from the Romans. Uh, And he, along with Josephus and others, are trying to dissuade them from waging war against the Jews. Uh, They didn't listen to him either. And the reason they didn't listen to Josephus, the reason they didn't listen to Agrippa, is because Jesus has already said what's going to happen. This is part of the judgment that he uttered against Jerusalem. This had to happen. This war had to happen because this war was going to bring about the complete fulfillment of what Jesus proclaims that's recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 68 AD, at 30 years old, Now, I skipped ahead here. We're going to go back to 66 AD when we look at the Jewish war. But just to let you know, and I'll probably touch on it again, but at 30 years of age, in 68 AD, um, Nero dies. So the Roman Senate hated him, and they finally became so fed up with him that they sent soldiers to arrest him and bring him to be tortured and ultimately executed Nero found out what their plan was, and he fled before the soldiers could catch him, and he decides, he knows that he can't escape. There's nowhere he can go in the world to get away from Rome, so he decides he's going to kill himself. So he, he tries to uh, kill himself with his own sword, but it's too painful and too hard for him, and he stops midway, and he gets his personal assistant to finish the job for him. And so that's how Nero died. Um, Actually, it is said uh, that the poor actually loved Nero because Nero was good to the poor. Remember, Nero started out, um, it seems, tenderhearted. He didn't want to sign the execution order. He he didn't like seeing gladiators... uh, in the, in the games, it was too brutal for him. But somewhere along the way, uh, he flipped and he became as brutal and as cruel as anything that he ever rejected uh, in his early years. And so, but the poor, remember Nero also would go out, he would dress up like a commoner. And he would go and hang out with street gangs because... It's like he lacked something. Well, if you, you, you realize his mom, remember, murdered his dad so she could make her son the emperor, not for him, but for her. And then later on, what does Nero do? He murders his own mother because he doesn't trust her. And so it's like if she murdered dad to get power, why wouldn't she murder me to get power? So I'm going to murder her before she murders me. And Nero did that with a lot of people in his life. 
But it's like the poor were the only people maybe Nero trusted. So he was very good to the poor, but everybody else hated him because anyone that was seen as a threat to him, he'd just kill them. And he'd do it in a very, very cruel way. Or Christians, I need a convenient scapegoat. Oh, these Christians, they'll be good. And so he comes to his end there. Now, in the little bit of time we have left, so I I put some scripture here. We're not going to, maybe we'll look at these um, more later. But for instance, uh, Matthew 24. So, um, Matthew 24, the whole chapter is about the destruction of Jerusalem. Mark 13, the whole chapter is about the destruction of Jerusalem. Luke 21, the whole chapter is about the destruction of Jerusalem. John 12:31 doesn't have the same type of account, but I put this on your paper, John 12:31 Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus said those words at his immediately following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He said all of this in the week preceding his crucifixion. So, for instance, Luke 19, 37 through 44. I put this scripture on your paper, too. This is as he's. Making his triumphal entry. So Luke 19, 37 through 44, Jesus crests the hill overlooking the Kidron Valley and the city of Jerusalem. And as he stands on this hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem, he says these words. Now listen to what he says. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives... The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Because of what they were saying. They were proclaiming him the Messiah. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Who's coming? The king of Israel is coming. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those people proclaiming those very words were proclaiming their Messiah, their king. They were proclaiming Jesus as king. And the Pharisees understood this and they said, tell your disciples to be quiet, rebuke them. And here was the response of Jesus to tell your disciples to be quiet, rebuke them. He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, there's a couple of references there from the Old Testament. Uh, where stones were made witnesses to God's covenant and God's word and God's promise to his people. And there's no doubt that Jesus is referencing these things that those Pharisees would have understood. 
If they should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. So he's looking at Jerusalem and he's weeping over Jerusalem. And here's what he says as he weeps over Jerusalem. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies, excuse me, will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. That was fulfilled. That was fulfilled. When you read the historical records after the destruction of that day, Josephus says you can't even tell where there was a temple. You can't even tell where there was a city. It was so utterly destroyed. Let's go. um, Let's go to Matthew. Let's just look at a few of these. Matthew twenty-four. Matthew twenty-four. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. So this is during his final week. He's made his triumphal entry. These, it's literally days before his arrest and crucifixion. His disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. What's he talking about? He's talking about the buildings of the temple. Now remember in 65 AD, the construction of the temple was complete. So when Jesus is making this statement, they're still building buildings in the temple complex. The Herods are still glorifying and in edifying the temple complex. And why are they doing this? Well, in large part, they're doing this because this satisfied the Jews. The Jews took great pride in in their temple. And so this was one of the way the Herods kept favor. Remember, the Herods were not really rightful heirs to the throne, and they were not rightful heirs to the high priesthood. Yet they're appointing all of these people and they're acting as the king, though they don't have any, they have no, um, they have no really rightful claim to the throne. And so they would spend large sums of money and employ large numbers of Jews and they enriched a lot of people. Who do you think were the general contractors building the temple it was Jews, it was Jewish companies. So they're buying Jewish materials, they're paying for Jewish labor. So this was a huge enterprise that was a huge economic boon to the Jewish economy. And the Herods, 
use this to keep favor with the Jews who kept them basically in power. The Romans kept peace. So they didn't, they didn't care about the people that hated them because they knew that Rome wasn't going to let things get out of hand. And so they were making sure that they kept favor with the people they needed to kept, keep favor with. And it's not that even Agrippa, King Agrippa, remember, was a devout Jew. He had Christians persecuted. So the first persecution of Christians didn't come from Romans. It came from Jews. The Jews persecuted the church. And, and one reason Agrippa persecuted the church is because he was a devout Jew and he didn't, he didn't follow the way. Remember when Paul stands before him, Paul says, he says to Paul, he said, Paul, would you, you almost convinced me. And Paul says, would that I could convince you and you could become just like me except for these chains, king. Well, that didn't happen. And so King Agrippa understood what was taking place. So here is Jesus talking to his disciples 32 years before, 33 years before the war began. And he says, as they say to him, boy, look at this beautiful temple, Jesus. Isn't this something? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And that's exactly what happened. And Josephus tells us the reason those Jewish, those Roman soldiers pried those stones apart. You know why? The stones of the temple. There was so much gold. Every, everything inside the temple was plated in gold. So all those cedar walls, all that cedar ceiling, all of that was covered in gold. And when that temple caught on fire, all of that gold melted And it ran between all the stones that the temple was built from. And the foundation of the temple, those great stones, had gold and silver. All melted, flowed right between them. And what happened? Those Roman soldiers, at the command of their higher-ups, said, You pry every one of those stones apart and you get every ounce of gold and silver from the rocks of that temple. And that's what they did. That's why there was nothing left of the temple. That's why the words of Jesus were literally fulfilled. All right, we're going to stop right there. And when we come back, we're going we're to talk about the conflict that's going to start in 66 AD. And we'll revisit some of these scriptures, those scriptures that I have there in your handout. We're going to look more closely at those scriptures and see how they relate to what Jesus warned his disciples about concerning the coming judgment and the coming destruction. All right, any questions? Yeah, do you think uh, next week, or would you want more time to talk about like where and why you think temple, where the temple was and why you think it was different than what is the common view today? Yeah, so... Yeah. So what we might do, probably what's going to happen, you can't really, there's so much happened during the Jewish war. There's so many interesting things. So you guys know, I mean, uh, so I'm going to, Josephus wrote uh, a whole history of his people. Josephus was there. 
So Josephus fought in the Jewish war. He started out on the side of the Jews, was captured by the Romans. He ends that conflict riding around the walls of Jerusalem, begging his people to surrender to the Romans because he knows what's going to happen. And Josephus was there when Rome was besieging Jerusalem. He's writing this history. He's, a, he's literally an eyewitness to these things. He's not getting second-hand accounts. Josephus is writing an eyewitness account of what happened. So we may take, um, yeah, it, it's going to definitely take more than one session. We may take several sessions to cover this part of history. And the reason I want to do this is because if we don't understand this part of history, this part of world history, we don't rightly understand our Bibles. Because um, I wasn't raised in church, but when I got to church, I was taught that Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, all of that spoke of something that was yet to happen. It wasn't until I actually picked up the works of Josephus and began to read them myself. And I'm reading the works of Josephus and I'm reading his account of the the Jewish war. And I'm like, what? That's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Now, I didn't I didn't I didn't get I didn't get totally in that instant from being pre mill to post mill. But when I read that, I'm like, okay, I can't read Matthew 24 now and read it the same way I've always read it. I have to read it now and understand that this does not mean what I've been told that it's, it's meant all this time. And if there, you know, typically if there ever was any mention of 70 AD, it was really kind of in passing. Because everyone's focused on this thing that's going to happen yet. So we want to take some time because I think this is really important for us to, to just kind of pause on our journey through the timeline and, and, and be really thoughtful about how we read this history and understand this history. Uh, because there's a lot here in, in studying this section of Scripture, in these sections of the Gospel, we're going to learn why Jesus used the language he did. And it wasn't accidental. And, and, uh, and we're going to see that Jesus used the language that God used in the Old Testament. And he used it concerning Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And he used it concerning judgment coming upon cities and nations in the Old Testament. So none of this is accidental. It's actually very purposeful. And so, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. We, we will take some time to go through that. Any other questions? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, according to the scale here, it's less than a, a square mile, mm-hmm. like a couple of thousand feet across in either direction of, mm-hmm. of the old city. Uh, that's smaller than Taylor. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it talks about three million people and therefore Passover. Yeah. It would have been nuts. Yeah. It would have been completely nuts. So, and when you see that, you understand why when Joseph and Mary 
are going to, for the census, to the city of David. Uh, one of the reasons, so it depended on when you think Jesus was born. So if Jesus would have been born more toward the Feast of, of Trumpets uh, in Day of Atonement, which coincides with tabernacles, um, you see why not only because of a census, but the population is swelling because Jews are returning to keep the law. And so it is, you're right, it's a, it's a relatively small area that three times out of the year became intensely crowded because of the pilgrim feast. Yeah. And I'll try to find some, um, I'll try to find some visuals that will help us. Um, and I do have some that might, might help us. All right. What else? Any other questions? Any other comments? All right. Any prayer requests?